I'm Yonit Levy in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts. Two Jews on the news. You, Yonit, are the main anchor on Israel's Channel 12 News. And you, Jonathan, are a columnist for The Guardian. So it does make sense for the two of us to be talking about the news. That is what we are doing here from our different perspectives. You're inside Israel and I'm, I suppose, outside. Exactly. I mean, we have a new president in the U.S. and lockdowns and vaccinations the world over. And of course, there's always an Israeli election going on. So we will have a lot to talk about on a weekly basis. We really will. I think the Israeli election thing is just going to be the permanent background. That is almost like a just a, a just sort of wallpaper. That's going to be there. Even if we're doing this in 30 years, you'll need, that is going to be <laughs> I, I am not getting enough credit, Jonathan, for orchestrating the whole thing just for the benefit of our podcast. Yeah, I think we're going to have that as a sort of permanent backbeat. Uh, But we are going to talk about first this extraordinary week of news and particularly a bit of history that was made in Washington, D.C., my old stamping ground. I know you've done reporting from there extensively as well. We both have. And neither of us, I think, ever got to see this, which is one guy, two impeachments in one year. I mean, the thing I've been trying to explain to sort of uh, colleagues and Guardian readers is how vanishingly rare impeachment always was. There was just, you know, when I arrived to cover the Clinton presidency, there had been one in American history back in the 1860s. With Bill Clinton, there was a second one. Now, Donald Trump has managed to pull it off to be impeached twice in a single year. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I I just saw someone... uh uploading on Twitter a picture of Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. He said the most corrupt uh, president in American history and Richard Nixon. Um, it, it, really is, it really is amazing. You know, there's this um, one of, the, of course, the best show in the world is uh, The West Wing. We have to agree on that. If we don't agree on that, we can't continue this podcast together. Luckily, we do have that in common. Exactly. We have, amongst other things, many other things, this is what we have in common. There's an episode in which Bartlett is fixing this text written to him uh, by, not by Sam Seaborn, but from someone from NASA. And he says, you know, Scott, something can't be very unique, nor can it be extremely historic. And after yesterday, I don't want to fix Sorkin's writing. I would never dare do that. But I think something can indeed be very unique and extremely historic. That is what we saw in Congress uh, uh, yesterday. Yeah, no, it was quite something. And partly as well, because for the, it is the least partisan impeachment vote there's ever been, because 10 Republicans did break ranks and vote to impeach uh, the president of their own party. I don't think that that kind of number has ever been achieved before. So that that's uh, colossal. Obviously, it was all triggered by the uh, attempted uh, insurrection and the accusation of incitement uh, to insurrection against Donald Trump after that mob stormed uh, the Capitol uh, last week and people uh, holding Donald Trump you know, indirectly and in some ways directly responsible for it because of that speech. What's been really interesting watching from the outside is the reactions of those people, particularly who uh, carried some water for Donald Trump before and they exist in every place and in every country, you know, here in Britain, there were quite a few Tory politicians, conservative politicians, uh, conservative commentators and thinkers who constantly were pushing back against people like me, you know, on The Guardian, who was sounding the alarm about Donald Trump in 2015, saying this man will, you know, lead the country into a new age of darkness and 
invoking the specter of the 1930s. And they said, no, 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 you're being hysterical. Trump is going to be better than you think, uh, wrote Douglas Murray in The Spectator, for example, a big right-wing intellectual. Boris Johnson said, you know, now Prime Minister, said there uh, when he was uh, not yet Prime Minister, said that he wanted, uh, you know, had a lot of admiration for Donald Trump and just imagined how brilliantly Donald Trump would handle Brexit. You know, he'd go in hard, he said, using this quite weird sort of testosterone alpha male language a lot of men use when talking about Donald Trump. And then now they're hastily, uh, you know, rowing back. They're doing a reverse ferret, as we would say uh, in Britain, trying to pretend that they didn't really say that. And there are people who are going through sort of, you know, polishing up their Twitter uh, back catalogue, deleting a few tweets, uh, but luckily, people have got screenshots of tweets where they say either, you know, Donald Trump's going to win re-election or uh, why do people get so hysterical about Donald Trump? It's not going to be that bad. They exaggerate. And, you know, that's the situation here in Britain where there are quite a limited number of admirers for Donald Trump. But I know in Israel, you have admirers for Donald Trump at the highest possible level, need. Oh, completely. By the way, what you're describing kind of sounds like the next step in Britain would be Trump... Do you spell that with a T? I mean, I remember he used to have a chain of hotels, right? Um, No, but of course, Israel is a very different kind of uh, picture. First of all, I mean, the the Israeli support for Donald Trump in general was always very high. Recent polls talked about 50 or even 60 percent support. I mean, if he had that kind of support in the U.S., he would still be president, right? Um, And and when you talk about Britain, Britain, it's obviously like 15 percent support for for Donald Trump. So in general, um, Israelis supported Trump, I think, because they saw him, uh, what he did for Israel, right? And and when you look at that list, it's actually quite a good list, right? There's normalizing ties with the UAE, peace with the UAE, with Bahrain, with Sudan, with Morocco. You have um, standing beside Israel in its uh, uh, um, thoughts about Iran and not pushing Israel on the Palestinian and not demanding concessions, and it goes on and on. So Israelis in general looked at that. And it's not that they didn't know in the back of their mind that he had to put it mildly, a personality problem, or that Jews in the United States as a whole, 70% of them despised him. But they focused on the what happened uh, in Israel, his regard to Israel. And so in general, they supported him. Now, something changed, I think. A penny dropped after January 1st. Um, they suddenly saw something that they kind of didn't focus on before. And if I can quote a, a colleague of mine, a very talented, uh, our political affairs correspondent, Amit Segal, who wrote this on Twitter, and I think this encapsulates the sentiment for many Israelis. He wrote, for years I thought that the allegations about Trump and his supporters were political slander. The attack on Congress proves otherwise. So I think there has been a sort of shift in the Israeli mindset. Now, you mentioned the very good friend uh, uh, Trump has in, in Jerusalem, and that is, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu who has aligned himself completely with Donald Trump, um, never paying an internal price for his skirmishes with Barack Obama as president. And and I don't know, and this is a big question that I'm sure we'll relate to someday, and that is what will be uh, his relationship with the new, new uh, Biden administration. You do see an interesting dance, Jonathan, with his reaction to what has happened in Congress, right? Because on one hand, he's uh, saying he's condemning the, the violence, he doesn't mention Trump in name. He's condemning the violence while in a photo op with uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary for Trump. Um, and you have those moments where he kind of backtracks a little bit, 
right? I mean, you remember that famous call in October where Trump put him on speakerphone saying, BB, this is his quote, right? BB, you think a sleepy joke can make peace with the Sudan and you have, you know, Netanyahu's gears kind of saying, oh, you know, Mr. President, I'd be happy with everyone, every American trying to make peace, right? That was his diplomatic answer. Um, By the way, I have to remind you, Jonathan, that we have uh, Trump Heights. We actually have a township named after Trump in the Golan Heights. Uh, 10 or 15 families are going to move in there in the coming days. I don't know if there's a big bottle of, uh, uh, you know, whiteout on its way to erase that someday, like turn it into, I don't know, Biden Heights or uh, presidential heights, or, you know, if you're stuck in the 90s, maybe Melrose Place, whatever. Um, but the important thing is that what we do know about Netanyahu is that he erased the cover picture of his Twitter, which was him and uh, uh, Trump. And now it is uh, the vaccination uh, uh, rollout. So, you know, there's a little bit of... Oh, well, that is perfect evidence. I hadn't realized he'd done that. That is perfect example of what we're talking about, which is people essentially airbrushing out sort of Stalin style, trying to doctor the visual record. And people have, as I said, been deleting tweets, changing the banner photo on the Twitter profile is is a choice example. I, I think Israel might be the only place that is saddled with a with a town or village named after Donald Trump. They were too, you know, that was just premature um, commemoration <laughs> there, if I can uh, invent a new uh, sexual disorder, <laughs> um, because uh, that was just too early. And I always thought that actually, even as somebody who's a, such a strong, you know, critic of Donald Trump, I always thought that was odd to move so early. Just wait till the presidency is over, just in case. But yeah, it, it, that is embarrassing to have Trumpites. I think the whole thing is been interesting the whole period because people are torn about whether to ask the oldest in some ways corniest question uh, which is of a politician which is is he good for the jews you know and there was this there was a whole category of things which you've just mentioned which is that donald trump's position on israel made people think oh he's good for the jews um also the jewish son-in-law jared kushner the daughter that converted to judaism and the you know. da- right and the daughter ivanka converting to absolutely and and you know they made a big song and dance about how they are you know sabbath observant and all this i you know or you could get much less traction for pointing out the other side of the ledger which was that he engaged in really quite old-fashioned uh, anti-semitic dog whistling donald trump even as a candidate in 2016, he went to the Republican Jewish coalition and uh, made these remarks about, you know, your people, uh, you understand this because your people who like to renegotiate, you know, no one renegotiates better than you. And that got written up in a few places as, oh, he's saying negotiate. It was very deliberate. He said renegotiate, meaning essentially your people who go back on your word and you break your deal, you'll break your agreements. Uh, and then he said, you know, the difference is I'm not asking for any of your money. You can't buy me. Uh, and, you know, those he did it again in the 2018 midterms. He blamed the so-called caravan of migrants on George Soros. He talked about globalists, which was understood by the kind of people who stormed the capital, actually, as a dog whistle to mean Jews. Uh, I think Donald Trump really was a, a, a classic um, uh, sort of you know, a New York anti-Semite. Those people exist. And his father was from that kind of world as well. Uh, And yet he managed to um, uh, cover it by making nice with Israel in a way that, you know, in ways that I don't think were particularly helpful for Israel. I'm one of those people who thinks actually some pressure on Israel not to continue with, you know, settlements, etc. would be better for Israel. But 
he did he got credit among the proposal crowd for that and they were prepared to overlook the other stuff the sight of those people storming the capital wearing camp auschwitz sweatshirts i think as you've said that made the scales fall from a lot of people people's eyes and think maybe we got this guy wrong yeah, I, I think, you know, when you, you, you talk about these things, and I, I had a lot of conversations with um, Jewish advisors to Donald Trump, who, first of all, would always make the point of saying he is very respective of us as Jews. And, of course, what you made, the, the points you made about his family, he, they would also always point out and say, you know, the people who are extreme and support him, he can't be accountable for that, right? And he... Um, People who think he's an anti-Semite and vote for him because of that are gravely mistaken. And you always also have the supporters of Trump who will give you the whataboutism, which is always, well, let's talk about the extreme left as a problem. And that is a problem. And we should talk about that. But it's always shifting the conversation. Um, there is there is a lot to say about this. I think that right now in the United States, the fumes are still in the air. We are still before the inauguration that will be with the most beefed up, up security we've ever seen. And let's hope that after that, there is some way to de-escalate it, escalate all of this, all of what we have been seeing. Yeah, I, I wonder about how they approach that. I've been thinking about that a lot. There's this whole argument about, you know, yes, he's been impeached, but the Senate, what do they do? You know, is there a, a trial? James Comey, the former director of the FBI, said that Biden should pardon Trump. And there are some Democrats who I know are thinking politically that maybe it's it's better for them not to burn up the fuel of the first 100 days with a with a trial um in the senate it's better just to sort of put it behind you uh, the the other view is that actually there has to be a marker put down almost for the historical record which says inciting a mob to insurrection is um is is not on and you will be held accountable for that and that democrats maybe have to sacrifice what they would like which is a nice turning of the page for joe biden and instead do the right thing on this. I would say um, that, you know, uh, people with memories like we have know that actually the Trump experience uh, has unleashed a lot of very, very uh, menacing kind of demons. Um, and there were, you know, I think it was over the top, the comparison that Arnie Schwarzenegger drew between the crowd and Kristallnacht, that I, I wouldn't have gone there myself. I think people who have the kind of historical memories we have thought about Donald Trump, we've seen people like him before, we know that type. And that's why I did always actually find it quite disappointing that some in Israel particularly, and, and, and some on the American right, were able to say, well, look, he's making all the right noises about, you know, the Golan Heights or moving the embassy to Jerusalem, and therefore I'm not I'm tuning out the other stuff. Somebody who wages a war on truth and just lies and lies and lies is bad news for the Jews, in my view, even if they're making, you know, what pro-Israel people would think are the right noises on Israel. So, uh, you know, I think that's been proven right. As you said, the penny has dropped. Um, and maybe even Bibi Netanyahu himself has sort of uh, now got that message if he's changed his you know, profile picture. Exactly. How about moving on to good news and the most unelegant segue in the history of segues? <laughs> no, that's I, I don't know where you're going, so I can't I can't judge the segue. <laughs> it's like the Cheshire Cat. If you don't know where I'm, you're where you're going. What do you care what road you're taking, right? <laughs> um, Okay, I want to talk about a little bit about uh, us being us as an Israel being the vaccine nation, uh, and you know the remarkable achievement of what has been going on here for the past uh, three weeks. Right now, as we're s sitting here and talking, uh, one out of every 
16, that's one six, people in the world who are vaccinated is an Israeli. Vax- Israel has vaccinated 2 million people at a rate of uh, something between 150,000 to 200,000 a day. Um, so I'm waiting for you to say, wow. I know you're British and you don't get all enthused, but you can say, wow, Jonathan. No, that is a wow. How many is it per day, did you say? About 150,000 to 200,000 a day. Um, so, uh, you know, on a, Israel is basically becoming the, the model state for vaccinations and could well be uh, the first state to be vaccinated. The date that the prime minister uh, set on this, um, rather coincidentally, one must say, is mid-March uh, to vaccinate 5.2 million Israelis with at least uh, the first dose. Uh, we and you say coincidentally, coincidentally. that's because I'm looking at my calendar. What else is happening in late March, you need? Really, it has no connection whatsoever. There are Israeli elections. You know, our joke in the, oh, in the right. newsroom is, uh, you know, okay. when all Israelis will be vaccinated midnight of March 22nd, because the next morning they go to the polls. Of course, this is, you know, something we talk about a lot. And, and, and I, I think that, you know, from the outset, we need to set why Israel is such a success story in this regard. And then we'll get to politics. Don't worry. I will mar it with politics in a minute. But you know, first of all, it's the logistics and the fact that we are a small country. We're just a country the size of New Jersey. We have nine million people. It's very easy to get from one point to another. We have our HMOs, right? Our health management uh, uh, organizations. Um, everything is extremely efficient. The data is shared with everyone. By the way, it's also shared with Pfizer, who is getting the aggregated data from this. It's part of the agreement from from these uh, um, vaccinations, um, and and so this is. Uh, really an efficient operation. Uh, Netanyahu was definitely instrumental in these negotiations with Pfizer. So were a lot of officials from the health ministry. But of course, what is happening is that you're you're uh, getting everyone politicizing this, right? So on the one hand, you have Netanyahu out there every day taking a picture with the plane, bringing in the bringing in every vial of vaccination, right, um, uh, to Israel, saying this is me, right. Every coup tweet begins with while Netanyahu is bringing the vaccinations to Israel, his uh, rivals are dealing with petty politics. And on the other hand, you have the labor who is saying, wait a minute, we are the ones who set up this infrastructure, right? We are the ones who made sure that Israelis all have health insurance and set up these HMOs, right? Because we are, I'm going to say this word quietly so the Americans won't fret, socialists. They were socialists and they set this up. So they deserve the credit, right? Now, everyone deserves the credit, right? But only one person is going to the polls in March and is going to hope that his failure to deal with coronavirus thus far will be eclipsed by this uh, really, truly great achievement. It's a, been an amazing thing to watch. I mean, in in well, just first of all, it's an incredible achievement. And you see, you know, on the BBC News, I think last night, they had a graphic of rates of vaccination. And it was one of those bar charts where the Israel bar just sort of shot off the screen yep. uh, because it was so long. And then there was, there's a couple of Gulf states. And then I think Britain is fourth at the moment. But they're all around the 2% mark or whatever. And Israel is, you know, I think it's it's growing every day, but it's 18, 20, 22% of yep. the population. We're, these we're, sorts of numbers. We've, we've hit the 22% mark, yep. So, it, it, I mean, it's an amazing number. The, the Obviously, there's been a, a strange trajectory here uh, on this one, which is in the very first phase of the pandemic. Israel was also a leader. It got ahead very early with measures it took uh, in terms of closing the airport and everything, kept the numbers really low to the point where, you know, I wrote a piece in the Jewish Chronicle about why was it that Israel had managed to handle this so well and, 
you know, spoke to people who said this is to do with the kind of country's ability to handle handle a crisis, its state of sort of crisis readiness, and partly because the, you know the military pay, uh, play a huge part in Israeli life. Then it changed, and suddenly we were hearing about how the disease was rampant in Israel, and you know, having to go back into lockdown and the numbers off the charts. And as we're both speaking now, you know, Britain is in a really serious uh, state of lockdown, as tight as it has been, uh, you know, since the initial March lockdown, tiny bit uh, looser, but really subtle differences. It's basically back in uh, serious first wave lockdown. The death toll here is really staggering. Um, It's, you know, uh, in the... I think it's cleared 85,000 uh, and 1,500 a day is the current rate of deaths. So it's d- desperately serious. And I know in Israel too, there are very, very high infection rates. And yet in Israel's now there's a third reel. There's a third act in this story, which has come with the vaccination and the pivot. And and that is one, you know, huge plaudits um, because it's it's such an outlier. No one else has gone anywhere near uh, as fast. The thing that I've noticed just in the politics of this, since you mentioned politics with the election, is that I'm pretty sure if it was, say, New Zealand that had notched up these numbers with Jacinda Ardern, you know, uh, an absolute sort of uh, icon to progressives in Europe and in Britain, I don't think we'd be hearing the end of it if it was uh, New Zealand that would be doing it. And every day you'd be having people saying, why can't we do what the New Zealanders are doing? And they would be getting you know reports and everything. That isn't quite happening with Israel. People are not saying, can't we do the Israeli thing? And why don't we have, you know, Leicester Square in London be like Rabin Square with these, you know, con- <laughs> this vaccination facility, etc. And I think, unfortunately, it is political, the reason. And that is because the, and, and I know this has provoked a big debate, but because the uh, occupied territories, the West Bank and the Palestinians in the West Bank are not in the same vaccination program, mm-hmm. that has kicked off a whole debate where one side says, well, they're not because the Palestinians under the Oslo Accords are in charge of their own health care and did not request Israel uh, uh, to help with vaccination. And there's a view on the other side which says, no, under the Geneva Convention, Israel is the occupying power and therefore is responsible for vaccinating Palestinians. And that argument has gone back and forth and is and is very bitter. Uh, you know, you can find parts of social media where that is just a constant argument. But the result, I think, is that even people who are not that animated by the Israel-Palestine issue just sense that it's a bit of a minefield politically and therefore don't really want to go there and are not mentioning it in a way that I think otherwise they would. So people say, I've noticed, for example, you know, Boris Johnson said, we've achieved the highest numbers, uh, you know, in Europe. And so he doesn't want to have to say anywhere in the world except Israel, because then you'll, you know, you risk someone saying, ah, but Israel is 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 refusing to vaccinate one section uh, of the population, even if they're not drawing the distinction between the West Bank and Israel itself. So it's kicked off a proper um, uh, debate. And I think that has somehow impeded what would otherwise be a kind of model uh, status that Israel might have acquired for itself through the vaccination. Right. I mean, well, we need to admit that, for, sadly, that uh, Israel is for some people a trigger word, right? And uh, uh, and that is tragic. And for two people who enter this minefield willfully, uh, we have to be, uh, of course, aware of that uh, doing this podcast. I will just say, uh, from the informative point of view, that Israel 
all of the uh, um, sort of off-air and also on-air officials in the health ministry that talk about this say, first of all, we will give the Palestinians the surpluses from our vaccinations. And secondly, I know that Israel is in negotiations with the WHO to make sure uh, also that the Palestinians will receive vaccinations. Uh, I'm not even talking about the moral or the legal aspects that you mentioned. Even from a health perspective, it it is an important move that uh, Israel takes care of that. That is uh, no question. Yeah, I think I think the thing on the Israeli right, that, on the, or the pro-Israel right, that has amused me a little bit, is suddenly all these people who previously were saying to people like me or colleagues at the Guardian, "Why do you keep drawing this, this distinction between Judea and Samaria and the rest of Israel? It's one land of Israel." Suddenly now they're all saying, "No, no, what do you mean? They're <laughs> Palestinian territories. They're like a foreign country. This is like us accusing you, Britain, of not vaccinating the French. You know, this is a different country, nothing to do with us." And some of us with long memories are thinking, "Well, that wasn't the position a few weeks ago, but." Or a year yeah, ago before that's your, coronavirus, that's on back you. then it was all part the, of the that's land That's on Israel. you, British man, for using logic. Your problem. <laughs> I can't. <Yeah. laughs> that is um, the, uh, you know, you're right. That's a big debate. But listen, you have mentioned that the backdrop to vaccination is the political timetable. So is that the reason why it's all happening so fast? Yeah, look, I don't think it's it's the reason why everything is happening so fast, but there's definitely a, a, a convergence between the fact that uh, Netanyahu wants the the focus shifted off his really the failure to deal with coronavirus. You talked about the numbers in Israel. You talked about the fact that we're in third restrictive lockdown. Um, so shifting the the blame to this, I think you know taking care of the population and the fact that we have an election, right? If this is an election that goes forth with the backdrop of an extremely successful vaccination uh, rollout, then Netanyahu, you know, has a lot of, has big chances to to succeed. Now, now, we have to talk a little bit about Israeli politics, um, Jonathan. Um, Let's do it. so, So I would, you know, Obviously, trying to understand Israeli politics is kind of like, uh, I think, stepping blindfolded into a a shooting ring. So I'm going to try and help. And I'm going to put one date on the calendar and uh, two important things that might happen. February 4th is the date in which all of the lists have to be uh, uh, um, registered, right? It's the deadline for for sending in your your party's list, which means any merger that happens, this is the season of mergers and acquisitions, any merger has to happen by February 4th. Uh, Why is this important? Because there are two questions uh, on the table right now. One is... Will the shattered opposition uh, in the center left, right, blown up, blown apart by Benny Gantz, will somehow manage to coalesce and, and merge back in some format, right, that might, you know, uh, uh, change the election um, picture? If that ha- if that doesn't happen, it will be the first time in Israeli history that the political battle is not between left and right; it is only within the right, right. Um, and you know, by the way, I would just kind of throw away the whole left and right distinction in Israel. I would just talk about pro-BB, anti-BB camps. But uh, if you want to keep talking about the left and right, the other question, which is really important, is whether the two kind of, uh, I don't want to say insurrectionists, right, but the two challengers for Netanyahu, Sa'ar Gidon Sa'ar and Naftali Bennett, if they merge, that is a big deal. That is something to watch for until February 4th, because if that happens, then Netanyahu can't get his magic number of 61, uh, which has eluded the number that has eluded him for three election cycles in a row, and in a way is the reason why we're going to fourth elections. So my jaundiced and maybe jaded perspective here is that I see the Saar Bennett thing and just think, 
in the end, let's say they run and run very strong. Bibi mm-hmm. is the ultimate political survivor. We've heard about how well he's doing in identifying himself with the vaccination program. Isn't there then, in the end, a tussle and coalition jobs and Naftali Bennett is offered the defence ministry, say, and Gidon Saar, foreign minister, or whatever, finance minister. And in prime, the end, BB ends prime up Prime minister in rotation, right? We've done or this rotation, before. rotation, but one way or the other. rotatee, yes. I, you know, you do sometimes feel with Israeli elections, yeah, this is what I was saying about the wallpaper. There's another Israeli election. There's going to be all kinds of back and forth and different labels, but in the end... We've seen this movie, BB ends up on top. And so that, that tell me, uh, you know, why I'd be wrong to, to, to slightly feel like, you know, wake me up on March 23rd because it feels like that's just the way it happens No, 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 no don't, don't kill the ratings of my election night broadcast, Jonathan. <laughs> that's really an unfriendly thing to do. Um, look, I, obviously there's this ongoing joke in Israeli politics, right, that you uh, play... Oh, you lot call it football, but soccer for 90 minutes and at the end Netanyahu wins, right? That's not so simple. In the last three election cycles, Netanyahu could not form a government. The only reason he succeeded to form a government this time is that Benny Gantz, who, you know, I guess one could say he's a nice chap in the worst sense of the word, said enough is enough. I can't drag Israel to fourth elections and I will enter into a coalition with him. So I I think there's a lot to watch for. And as you say, look, it's all in the numbers at the end, right? If Gidon Saar and Naftali Bennett don't run together and Gidon Saar gets eight seats and uh, 10 seats and Naftali Bennett gets 10 seats and Bibi, you know, lures both of them and brings them in. It's a possibility. But I think that there are a lot of voices, and for the first time, there is, you know, Gidon Saar is a true challenger to Netanyahu. He's seen the whole, the machine from the inside. He knows what this is. He was a very popular member of the Likud. He knows how it works. He set up coalitions for Netanyahu himself. He was a loyalist. He broke from him. That is dramatic. If he can bring in, if he can reel in a lot of ex-Likud or current Likud who don't like the, the position that the party is going at, then he can really make a difference. Now, you know, Jonathan, you, you, I remember we had this conversation a long time ago, you're asking me about Lapid, and I told you it might sprain your neck and you got got to squint your eyes, but you need to look for the answer in the right and not in the left. Um, Can I quote me back to me? I think I can. (laughs) Um, It's a podcast available. We can do that. Um, But, you know, so, so I would say that uh, he's, he's a man to watch. He can do it. He is more adamant about saying, I'm not going to sit with Netanyahu. Naftali Bennett is, is obfuscating every time you ask him. Um, it's more difficult for him. But but it is something that can indeed happen. Um, by the way, since you have a slight, I don't want to say obsession, but you are interested in people who used to be journalists and specifically columnists entering politics, we will revisit that issue one day. So Gideon Saul was also a columnist uh, when he just started, and then he was the legal affairs analyst in our network, before diving into politics. And he's also married to a, uh, a few years ago, he married a uh, brilliant anchorwoman uh, uh, called Geula Evan. I'm not mentioning this because you love gossip, Jonathan. We know you love gossip with your whole bravado. You know, ah, I write for The Guardian. You love gossip like the rest of us. But it's, I'm mentioning it because it means that he, they are a power couple and that she gives him glamour and he makes, she makes him more popular. So that is something to watch. That is what I'm, I was trying to say. I, I would be worried for Israelis now in the light of this because the one thing we've learned in Britain is that a columnist, 
and journalist, <laughs> you don't want them anywhere near running the country. You know, Boris Johnson is the ultimate um, columnist and journalist, meaning he can really, you know, he, he he's a deadline surfer, which is, you know, was funny during the Brexit negotiations in a way, the way he would wait till the last minute. But it is disastrous with a pandemic. Somebody, journalists always, you know, snap into action five minutes before deadline. He approaches um, the pandemic the same way and therefore crucial decisions. He puts them off until they are really, there's only one option still left on the table. So, you know, advisors telling him lockdown now, lockdown now, and he waits and waits and waits. So I would worry about um, having Israel moving to the Boris Johnson model of leadership by putting a journalist. <laughs> that is actually such an interesting analysis of why he makes the decisions the way he does. I, I think never so. thought of that. I mean, about you know, Boris we, like, we, I don't <laughs> want to speak against my tribe, tri- my trade or my tribe uh, as a columnist, but you don't want us running the country. You know, we can do other <laughs> things, but you don't. And uh, and we I can, think we can um, clean up this. But what we, we can do, by the way, cleaning up all this Israeli mess. Right? <laughs> There's one solution. Well, that is what bring that back, worries me. Bring back the British mandate. I'm just saying it can be done. <laughs> That, we can't. You guys didn't do a worse. That one, is a very saying. niche position to revive the British mandate. <laughs> you think? Um, but Probably I'm, not the only person in the world in Washington and in Tel Aviv thinking this I, this week. I'm just saying, I, might I, be. I can't imagine. But the but so that's a worrying thing. But it is amazing the idea that uh, in the end, what what will there's something sort of Shakespearean or something that what will topple uh, Netanyahu will not be the the left that he spent 35 years fighting, but in the end from within his own ranks. I mean that little point you made about get on. And he knows how the bodies are buried. He knows how it works. I do remember hearing that about a Victor Lieberman back in the day. That oh, you know, he knows BB inside out. He was his chief of staff. He was his fixer, and and so therefore he'll be the man to uh, topple the king. You know, look, eventually BB will be toppled. You know, but it's become one of those things where it almost just requires a kind of leap of the imagination to imagine Israel without him. Um, you know, I wrote uh, a, a long magazine piece uh, for The Guardian recently, uh, back in November, for the 25th anniversary of the Rabin uh, assassination. And, you know, as everyone knows, the leader of the opposition then and the man who succeeded uh, within a matter of months as prime minister was the same Netanyahu. I mean, there are not many issues in world politics where you could do a 25-year retrospective and the same person is still in charge, as as was in charge then. I mean, even Angela Merkel doesn't have that kind of track record. And therefore, I think it has almost become hard for people, again, perhaps outside Israel, maybe inside as well, to imagine the country uh, without him. Yeah, especially uh, after the biggest challenger to Netanyahu's rule in at least a decade, uh, uh, which is Benny Gantz, turned around after three elections and decided to join Netanyahu, right? And and a lot have been sa- has been said about Benny Gantz. He's become the sort of punching bag for the Israeli political arena in recent uh, uh, weeks. You have to remember this is a man who came in with 35 mandates, a huge success. And today in the polls, after his party basically imploded, uh, um, is, is about five uh, mandates. So that's like the threshold, the electoral threshold. But... I would want to tell you, Jonathan, that there is a loophole. It's a, I'll call it the Benny Gantz loophole. Um, the current government, uh, you uh, might remember, passed a law that Gantz will become prime minister after Netanyahu. Nobody believed that would happen besides Benny Gantz, but it's still a law, and that law hasn't changed. It says that in 17th of November, 2021, Benny Gantz becomes prime minister. Now, walk with me in the land of, you know, f- legal fantasy. The elections are over, right? March. No one forms a government. Deadlock. This has happened before. 
we go to fifth elections. Very bad for the country, very good for the podcast. It happens around October 2021, and yet no one can actually form a government. Then what happens? We reach 17th of November 2021, and Benny Gantz, if he indeed is still a member of Knesset, because prime minister has to be a member of parliament, he becomes prime minister. And all the people who said he was naive and a novice and shouldn't have joined Netanyahu, he will have the last laugh. Again, far-fetched, but still a possibility. And since Israeli politics is like democracy meets Alice in Wonderland, still a possibility. I, I, I don't think it's irrelevant at all to mention that. I mean, you said legal fantasy, and obviously it is. But that deadline will concentrate minds. I mean, I think you're absolutely right to say that legally that's how it will play out. And for that reason, they will stretch every sinew to make sure it doesn't play out like that. In other words, the situation that followed the previous electoral deadlocks will be different this time because those situations allow Bibi to think, well, this is fine because I'm still the acting prime minister. If once, because of that brilliant point you've made about November, that logic no longer will hold. And so there will have to be some kind of resolution simply because that Gantt scenario is so repellent to Netanyahu and to and and plenty of others actually uh it just won't be allowed to happen so that's worth having in mind the this sort of permanent purgatory uh, limbo there's now a hard limit on that because of that law I, uh, you know look the people didn't who drafted it probably didn't imagine it having that use but it's there now just uh, one of the great things that Israeli politics keeps throwing at us I was going to mention the one in, uh, election story that had caught my eye, um, and that is, uh, I think if we were going to hand out awards uh, for chutzpah, for sheer cheek, and you know the definition of chutzpah is, I'm going to define it for people who are not up on their Yiddish, but the definition of chutzpah is that the man who is on trial for having killed his parents and is then convicted pleads for leniency from the judge on the grounds that he is an orphan. <laughs> that is chutzpah. And my award for chutzpah, if I was giving one out, would go to Netanyahu for this incredible move that he's made that I'm reading about here, which is this bid for the votes of Israel's Arab citizens. And he's made these couple of trips uh, to Arab villages or towns in Tira and Umel Fakham. And I think you've just got to hand it to him for the sheer nerve for um, for Netanyahu, who, who, you know, five years ago was warning uh, Jewish Israelis, you've got to get to the polls because the Arabs are going there in droves, uh, which is, it's not quite incitement, but it is pretty, you know, bigoted language. He's now got the brass neck, as we would say in this country, to turn up in these uh, Arab communities and say, vote for me. And it seems, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems as if he's even, he may even pull it off. You you forget, neglected to mention that in the 2019-2020 elections, he kind of ignored the joint Arab list when saying, I have a majority of the Jewish voters, thus I should be prime minister. Look, um, yeah. first of all, um, it, it looks like it's working from at least one perspective, and that is he is weakening the joint Arab list, right? From 15 seats, they now look like they're having 10 lists. And he's he's helping to this an internal debate. I think, though, after you said what you said, I would point out that it is extremely important for Israeli society if the man who was delegitimizing Arab Israelis now turns around and say, you are a part of us, right? I'm, I'm putting the cynicism aside for a second. It still is an important shift if it is 
it, it is true. And he will, of course, you know, he wants it as a political gain. But still, it's a good it's a good thing uh, uh, at the essence. And I, I have to quote one of the uh, we have a. a, a, a correspondent who interviewed, Ohad Chem was his name, he interviewed a um, salesman from Taiba this week, and he said, you know, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek conversation, and he said to him, so what, you think Bibi loves you, you guys now? And he said, I don't know, maybe it's a side effect of the vaccine. <laughs> so that could be, <laughs> that could nice. be a good answer. You know what, I actually agree with you about that. And my first reaction was deep cynicism and thinking what a chutzpah this guy has got to, you know, really run a quite anti-Arab rhetorical message for years and then caught their votes. But but I then did, my second thought was the one you've expressed uh, absolutely eloquently, which is that, you know, it's it's what Israel does need eventually is to uh, incorporate, integrate uh, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel into its own politics. And there is something perversely fitting that it will be the right that does it. Because if it had come from the left, uh, and in a way I think uh, some commentators in Israel have already been saying is they would be denounced as uh, by the right, as Arab lovers and and all and all the rest of that appalling language. Instead, it's it's kind of kosher if Bibi does it, and he, he's made thereby legitimated uh, Arab inclusion in politics. He said, I think that um, you know he's going to put an Arab politician on the Likud list, and that person might even get a government ministry. And you know what? That is where Israeli politics should get. And it's, it's long past the time it, it should have been there already. You know, one-fifth of the population, 20% of the uh, of the electorate. Of course, they should be integrated. And in a way, maybe it has to come from the right on the kind of Nixon to China principle. Um, you know, in this country, uh, people are quick to note that the first uh, woman prime minister and in fact the second woman prime minister were from the conservative party not the supposedly progressive labor party in this country and you hear a lot of people saying look the first prime minister of color in britain is probably going to be a conservative and you look at the top table of both parties and it looks like that you know the chancellor of the exchequer the number two in the british government finance minister is rishi sunak um british asian and you know in in some ways and and sometimes it does take the parties of the right to make these breakthroughs. And so, you know, maybe my um, initial uh, sort of uh, sceptical slash cynical reaction was perhaps, um, you know, unfitting. Um, but anyway, I still do think it's a, it's a little bit of a chutzpah. <laughs> so wait, that is our chutzpah nominee for this week? Well, that would be my one. I mean, you know, if you have somebody else, then I'm, I'm open to I'm open to suggestions. I'm not the uh, I'm, Oscar Academy. I'm not, you know, it's not in the envelope yet. But I, I think that would be a contender. Plus, uh, but if we do chutzpah, we don't we have to do the mensch of the week? I'm just I'm just saying, don't we want to be fair and balanced? Well, oh, that's a nice opposite. Okay, so um, how, so mensch. Well, for people again who have not had their heads in the Yiddish English dictionary, tell us who are you, strange people who don't speak Yiddish. Um, you know, distinguished, um, good guy or good gal, yeah. the the person who would take his uh, grandmother on errands when everyone is in parties. Um, that is that is the mensch, right? Um, so, so who who would be your choice if we were doing that? My choice. I think you have your good choice for mensch this week. You have I, two menches yes, actually. I mean, it's quite true. I do. I think if you were handing out, I would want a joint winner in the form of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, who, unbelievably, it was only last week, it feels like 20 years ago because of the way American <laughs> does, politics is moving, but they won these um, seats in the state of Georgia and obviously a lot of attention on the first black uh, Democrat elected 
from the state of Georgia to the Senate. Uh, That's a big deal. Uh, But I think Warnock himself and others have noted, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, civil rights leader, also noted that the two of them, uh, you know, a black pastor, a black preacher in the form of uh, Raphael Warnock, and John Ossoff, a young Jewish boy, who, by the way, his whole image was very mensch. True. That he was the kind of clean-cut guy you'd want as your son-in-law. I think that was his sort of pitch. Um, that, that Al Sharpton said, look, this is a reuniting of the old black Jewish alliance that marched together um, uh, for civil rights in the 1960s. And he, Sharpton, recalled that Martin Luther King did walk arm in arm uh, with Rabbi um, Samson Raphael Hirsch, I think, in the in those sixties uh, protests, and that that was something. There's been a you know those relate those relationships have been very strained. Uh, the Black Jewish relationship people have and can write you know doctoral dissertations on why they became strained, but I think that's a it was a real positive. Um, it's really hopeful that uh, a black senator and a Jewish senator walk together arm in arm into. Uh, the Senate. And um, and so, yeah, I think they could be our joint mentions. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, it's isn't it interesting that the first Jewish senator from Georgia will probably lead to the first Senate Jewish Senate majority leader uh, in Chuck Schumer. So that could be right. that is an interesting sort of uh, twist on this on this story. So I accept your nominations. It's an yeah, honor just to be I mean, nominated or a dishonor just to be nominated. And if we want to get chutzpah, really ahead of ourselves, um, yes. Os- John Ossoff, is, I think, the youngest senator elected since a certain Joseph R. Biden in 1972. Who was not even and, 30, so had to wait to be sworn in. Right, right. And and Ossoff is 33, and therefore, which makes all of us feel as if we've underachieved. But the thing about him, <laughs> it means, therefore, the fantasy of who will be America's first Jewish president. Well, it, we may have to wait 40 years like people did with Biden or nearly 50 years, actually. 49 years ago, Biden elected to the Senate. Amazing. Isn't that so amazing? maybe we'll have to wait 50 years. Maybe this is one for our grandchildren. But, you know, if you could put an early wager on the first Jewish president, Ossoff, who knows? Maybe. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a possible. Extremely, extremely early prediction here by Mr. Friedland. Yeah, that, <laughs> prediction is maybe overstating it. It is a little, it's a sort of Jewish mother fantasy, I think, more. Um, but why not? We, we can more, go with that. You're more Jewish mother than I am. Um, are we Are we winding up our conversation, Jonathan? Is it possible? I think we may have come to that moment. Oh, dear. Okay, chicken. we will just, first of all, uh, thank you so much for this, Jonathan. We will also thank our listeners and say that by next week we will have our email box set in uh, for fan mail for Jonathan, hate mail for me. Uh, <laughs> we will thank uh, Irad Eshel for our original music and Rom Atik, the head of podcast, and the third side of our triangle, our unholy trinity if you will our great editor Lior Friedman he likes to go by co-founder by the way co-founder Jonathan courage and love thank you so much we will see uh, each other or talk next week thank you your need oh.